You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and I'm so happy to have you here today. And we're a few minutes behind getting on board, but that is uh, something that that we hope that you'll stick a, you'll stick around for because we have such a wonderful guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Allison Brager, and she has been an absolute um, gem for. Uh, NASM as a subject matter expert, and she has supported us in several ways. And today we're going to be talking about sleep and sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene, I mean, I'll defer to her, but it does mean a lot more than just washing your sheets or bathing before you go to bed. So I cannot (laughs) wait to get into this conversation. And I'm going to just bat it over to Allison. And Allison, please just tell us about yourself, who you are, what you do, how you've contributed to NASM, and then we'll get into the sleep conversation. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, So it is such a a joy to work with NASM. Uh, Somebody years ago once told me to plan your career around your lifestyle and not your lifestyle around your career. And uh, I've been lucky enough to do that pretty much my entire career so far. Uh, So I am a neuroscientist. I was in school for about 14 years, Uh, did my PhD, did a few fellowships. Um, You know, if you want to talk about my specific area of expertise, it's actually looking at sleep genetics. So identifying new biological factors, mostly genetic factors that control Uh, how much sleep you need, but also particularly how well an individual handles sleep deprivation or stress. Uh, Believe it or not, there are a handful of genes that just make some people more resilient uh, to sleep deprivation than others. And so, you know, it's really no surprise uh, that when we're talking about high performers and elite athletes and even uh, government positions, those people, we believe, sort of self-select due to their, you know, unique biological makeup. Uh, So that aside, I have um, been able to leverage this work uh, to help the U.S. military. Uh, I do a lot of research related to uh, selection and accession purposes, again, looking more at the elite performers of the military and sort of putting people into positions that goes with their biology instead of fighting against it. Um, But how I got involved with NASM, too, is I, myself, I'm I'm still an elite athlete. Um, You know, even at the age of 36, I still try to compete at the highest level. Uh, Most recently, it was in CrossFit, uh, but I also do a master's track and field. Um, I was a four-year varsity athlete in track and field at uh, Brown University. And then I found CrossFit, and I've competed in the CrossFit Games a few times um, in regionals, too. Um, so that's really, you know, again, just marrying my lifestyle with my career. It's, it makes every day at work feel like a vacation and less like work. Okay, Allison, I'm just going to say that for somebody, you've got an <laughs> Ivy League education, you've spent years in school, you are an elite athlete. You make it seem like I've done nothing with my life. So, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, like this sounds crazy. I'm just trying to keep up with all my college teammates. So a few of my college teammates have like uh, SBs and Emmys and like literally they are like... <laughs> the kings and queens of the arts and entertainment industry. Uh, so one of my teammates is David Diggs, who was like one of the leads in uh, the play Hamilton. So yeah. you see who I'm competing with yeah. in terms of my oh, man, peers. Yeah, I got chills. I love him. Love yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, hey, I want to talk about, first of all, um, you, you're still active in the uh, military or what you do and mm-hmm. you support in the military. Can you just go into that briefly and then let's talk about sleep and what you've done with the military, because I, I, I think that there's probably some sleep deprivation that takes place, uh, yeah. and, and then get into this conversation about sleep pretty deep and how it can apply to all of us and our clients as well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I like to, there's this term that was coined a few years ago, I think by uh, Tim Ferriss and Ben Greenfield called uh, biohacking. Um, And I think for years, that's more or less what we as military scientists try to do is biohack um, physiology. And so in order to do that, you have to fully understand it down from 
um, you know, macroscopically at the level of behavior all the way down to the cell. And so that's something we've done in terms of discovering new factors in the brain or even outside of the brain that regulate sleep. Uh, so actually one of my claim to fames in the sleep field, and it's you know, like one of those discoveries I had years ago that will stick with me for the rest of my career, is I actually identified a protein in skeletal muscle that has the ability to regulate um, how much sleep an organism needs. Um, so for years, we always thought that, you know, sleep is like by the brain, of the brain, and for the brain. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out that there is a, the sleep set point actually lies in the skeletal muscle. And so it makes sense why there are such, um, you know, close parallels between um, how much sleep athletes need versus how much sleep the general population needs. Um, Whoa, I wish I could just hijack <laughs> the screen with a blown my mind emoji right now. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. No, I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, well, it's one of those things that, you know, like how we report our findings is very uh, not, I, I wouldn't say amenable to like the general public. And that's our own disservice as scientists. It's like, I don't think we do the best job of public advocacy. But I think as years go on, more and more of this um, information will get out um, into the, the general population. Uh, but I will say this discovery took about 10 years. Uh, so it was a, it, you know, it wasn't just me, it was a team. And we, you know, for 10 years tried to identify this protein factor uh, and we found it. And, you know, we're still like investigating how it works and, and everything again, from the level of cell all the way up to behavior. But, um, you know, it's things like that, that we apply to the military uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, we, like to study sleep under conditions of sleep deprivation, because let's be real, myself as a soldier myself, um, you're not gonna get adequate sleep when you're deployed. Uh, I actually, I just came back from New York City, so I got called out to um, run the COVID-19 testing lab at the Jacob Javits uh -huh. Convention Center. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, and it was, it was a tough balance between working 92 hours a week, but then also making sure I was getting enough sleep so that my immune system wouldn't tank and I wouldn't get infected myself. Um, but, you know, those are, again, those are things in the military that we have to have to further study is how well do people perform under sleep deprivation? What happens to physiology under sleep deprivation? And then how can we fix it? Um, so as you can imagine, one of the things we've worked closely in in the military is with caffeine. Uh, because yeah. let's be real, nobody, uh, you know, can pound some caffeine like a soldier. Uh, and, and, you know, athletes too, exactly. I, um, you know, to this day, I think caffeine is one of the best performance enhancing drugs um, if it's done right. Um, so we've actually done studies in the military to show that if you consume too much caffeine, it's not a good thing. Um, so it actually ruins any sort of sensitivity you have to caffeine. And then two, it's all about when you take the caffeine as well as the source. Okay, uh, so, so let, let's talk about what is too much because uh, I know some people and I'm not naming names. <laughs> I don't know who they are, but yeah. they might have a little too much caffeine. Um, wh where and how is that line drawn? So it's not so much your daily total intake, it's amount uh, the amount you take at a particular time. So oh. literally we've done these studies for decades, um, you know, many different schedules of manipulation of caffeine dosing. And we found that the body can't take in more than 200 milligrams at a time. Uh, so about 200 milligrams is less caffeine than an energy drink. So you can see where I'm going here with this. Um, one of many reasons why energy drinks are terrible for you and they do nothing but harm your body. Um, so I would say 200 milligrams is about two cups of strong coffee because um, a cup of strong coffee has about 80 milligrams of caffeine. Uh, so those, you know, athletes, um, uh, personal trainers who are taking pre-workout, those have over 500 milligrams of caffeine. Oh, my so goodness. It is doing, again, nothing but harm to your body um, because that extra 300 milligrams of caffeine, you're essentially just pissing out, um, for lack of better terms. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we have found that um, every four hours for about, um, as long as you need, if you're doing, you know, 200 milligrams at a time, you should be good to go. Now for somebody who just wants to sustain throughout the day, you should stop your caffeine intake around, um, 
early evening, so about five or six p.m. Um, but if you're somebody just so like, you know, mine's at four o'clock. That's that's my beautiful. Cutoff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful. Um, but for somebody like uh, a soldier who perhaps has to be up, you know, for 24, 40, mm-hmm. sometimes 72 hours on end, which I've done myself. Um, and medical professionals medical and professionals, firefighters. Absolutely. Like- yeah. Anyone, a first responder, medical, anyone right. who has this like high risk, um, high fast paced job where any, you know, lapse in judgment is the difference between life and mm-hmm. death. Um, Every four hours, consuming 200 milligrams will get you, will help prevent sort of any decline in your physical and mental performance. So I have a, I have a guy I used to know that if he slept in a few hours, he would wake up with a headache because mm-hmm. he would just, he was so, is it, you know, I don't know. What is that? Is it an addiction, a withdrawal? What's going on there with that, that caffeine, the lack of caffeine headache there? So, um, yeah, we become tolerant to caffeine, and just like any other uh, drug addiction, as soon as you don't have it, one of the, the first things that ha- happens is you have this uh, vasoconstriction, especially in your brain. Um, and, it, it, you know, that's like the, the sign of any sort of drug withdrawal, because at the end of the day, caffeine is a drug. Um, another reason why he may be w- waking up with headaches is actually dehydration. So I know there's a lot of uh, snake oil salesmen and charlatans out there who say you shouldn't drink water before you go to bed. Uh, that is completely false. Uh, you do secrete this hormone called antidiuretic hormone in the middle of the night that prevents you from waking up to go pee. But you should always hydrate because think about it, you're depriving of your body of water for at least eight hours. And if you're sleeping in, so you're extending your sleep to 10 hours, you're going to be even that much more dehydrated when you wake up in the morning. And I I also assume if it's a little bit warmer in your room, let's say that you just can't keep it as cool in the the summer as as you do in the winter, then you probably sweat a bit more when you're sleeping. Yes. Um, That probably affects it. That is yeah. a sleep hygiene tip 101 is right. always sleeping in a, in a cool room. Uh, and, and there's actually a biological reason for it. So um, as we progress through the stages of sleep uh, throughout the night, the, the deepest restorative stages of sleep are called um, deep slow wave activity sleep and then REM sleep, uh, which, you know, is the stage of sleep we dream. Um, and in order to enter REM sleep fully, you have to have a drop in your core body temperature. So as you can see, if you're sleeping in a hot or a a less optimal uh, room temperature-wise, you're actually preventing your body from going into the deepest stages of REM because um, your your core body temperature is not going to effectively drop. Now, I've had this conversation with with several people, and I've been fortunate enough to to work and have wonderful conversations with some sleep researchers. Um, you know, and they're pretty gentle about about this because I ask, I cannot sleep cold. People talk about you know sixty eight degrees or something yeah. like that, or, or down even to sixty two degrees. And yeah. my question is, you know, if people cover up and they're sleeping in a cold room, but then they're putting the covers on. Isn't it still uh, warmer than 68 degrees? Like what is, and yeah. and then if I can't tolerate it because I do not sleep well being cold, then that seems to affect my sleep as well. Uh, is that yeah. just something that my body should adapt to? Well, I mean, just like, uh, you, you know, you have heat tolerance and cold tolerance, your body will eventually adjust to sleeping in a, in a cool room. Um, regardless of the time of year, we say, yeah, between 68 and 72 degrees and then with like a thin sheet. So no comforter. Uh, but in your case, one of the things you might try and I, you know, a friend of mine started doing this like 10 years ago and then I started doing it. And then again, there's no science to support it because it's not like anyone would ever fund this study, but like, (laughs) Uh, sleeping naked is like something that like I've recommended to people. And once they do that, like people in your situation who say they can't sleep in a cold room, um, try sleeping naked. It will change your life. I can't, I can't actually, even sleep without like a shirt you. on. I can't oh. even sleep without a shirt on. I get so cold. And here's the thing, like I'll go to bed hot and yeah. I'll take a shirt off and then I'll wake up freezing. 
I'll wake up freezing. So, you know, I, I understand my, my, uh, my business partner at recover, uh, who's also an NASM instructor, Aaron Drogozeski, yeah. he has a chili pad. So he oh, sleeps yeah, yeah. with that pad that cools him off, uh, mm-hmm. all night long. Cause I think his wife is probably more like me. And so yeah. in order for him to get the coolness he needs, he's got the, the chili pad underneath him. Well, you know, everyone is different and it just goes to show, you know, that's why our job is never like a one size fits all. Um, And and that's something we do with our military Um, and and some of the athletes I work with, too. It's like it's very individualized, like even like, you know, when you talk about sleep disorders, there are different spectrums, uh, you know, especially with athletes. So, Um, well, I want to do something is that I got to I got to shout out to somebody that has actually increased the awareness to the public about sleep, sleep health, and sleep hygiene, mm-hmm. which is Arianna Huffington. Yes. And she did such a remarkable job of taking what you're doing right now um, and presenting it to the public. Yeah. Now, she didn't research it. She's the person in uh, the, of the Huffington Post, Arianna Huffington. Mm-hmm. But she really brought this out. And now we're seeing consumers consuming a lot of the information that you're talking about. And then we get people who've written books like Matthew Walker, uh, Why We Sleep, and some other researchers who are are putting out um, um, kind of general population-friendly content Mm -hmm. so that we can consume that information. Exactly. And so that's actually something I myself have personally shifted to in the last five or six years Mm. is – you know, training scientists to to make their research, like their, their messages, minimal to the public. Um, you know, that's actually a skill set that we teach now at professional development workshops. Awesome. And it's something that you have to work really hard at because, you know, it's really easy just like, you know, like physical trainers, they have their own specific way of uh, programming for, for a client. Um, but then they have to, you know, as they're doing the programming, they might know what all the jargon and acronyms and like the formulate things for programming are in their head, but that's not how they're going to communicate it to their client. Yeah. And, and scientists need to recognize and do the same thing where, yeah. So this protein factor I discovered, it's called uh, brain and muscle aren't like factor one. Like, Did you name that? No, it's actually, <laughs> it was, uh, it was named and discovered so the, the most recent um, Nobel Prize laureates who discovered the uh, circadian clock and circadian rhythms, they're the ones who discovered it. Um, and that's why they named it that is because it's highly expressed in the brain and the muscle. So it's expressed in most tissues of the body, but brain and muscle aren't like factor is highly expressed in the brain and muscle. Um, but it goes by BMO1 for short. Uh, but if I, you know, say right. female one to the public, they're like, what the hell is that? You know, it's just, right. yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's, I think it's wonderful what Ariana Huffington's doing, uh, what Matthew Walker's doing, because you do have the other end of the spectrum. Like, you know, one of our, our most like hated, uh, advocates in the field is, uh, Elon Musk because he loves to brag about how little sleep he gets and you know uh, it it pains us that he's so highly accomplished but you know what me as a sleep geneticist recognize he probably self-selected for what he did because he has a short sleep gene and we've identified genes and individuals who can get by with two to four hours of sleep a night and that's all they need Um, and it's probably no surprise that if you look at most u.s presidents a majority of U.S. presidents sleep under five hours a night. Um, and if you look at top CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, it's the same with them, too. So, again, it's in generals. If you look at uh, generals in the military, a lot of them sleep less than five hours, too. Um, I really think, you know, after those high, high-level positions, you do, you know, unfortunately, your biology is sort of self-selecting you into them. Yeah, I'm I, one of the biggest issues that we've had at Recover, which is a recovery facility for uh, athletic and cognitive stress. Um, our our issue is that people wear their lack of sleep like a badge of honor. Yeah, know? as you can imagine, in the military too, that's been you know that we're always fighting an uphill battle, especially with like combat arms units. Yeah. Uh, the medical side, we get it completely. Like we made sure in New York City, 
that, uh, you know, everyone had a great place to sleep um, and was getting at least seven hours a night. But then when I told my friends who were in combat arms, they're like, oh, of course, our army medicine is going to, you know, let their soldiers sleep more. I'm like, yeah, because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. hello, our research. Yes. Uh, you know, well, so our, our facility at Recover is only about a quarter mile away from the Javits Center where you guys did your setup. Um, oh, that and is so, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, if you're ever back that direction, I'd love to have you come over and, and visit us there. And we do a lot with, uh, with sleep and sleep hygiene and trying to really get mm -hmm. people involved and better understanding their sleep and supporting people with it. Um, I do have, I, do have um, I guess right now at this point would be a theoretical question. And, yeah. and it has to do with adenosine. Mm -hmm. And so from what I know, adenosine, oh, look at you. You've got the molecule tattooed on your forearm. I do. Yes, I oh, do. Oh, well, you might be the right person to ask this question to. Well, that, um, that is like in my area of subspecialty, that's all I focus on is adenosine. All my research over the past 15 years has been involved around adenosine. <laughs> okay, so here's what I have. My question is... Um, I know, for instance, when I am sleepy, mm -hmm. right? When I am sleepy, that we know that there is a buildup of adenosine that takes place and that caffeine is a blocker to those receptors. Or, yep. uh, so it's blocking the adenosine. But yeah. here's the question. The question is, after I work out, I mm -hmm. tend to not be so sleepy. Well, the mm -hmm. adenosine is the same adenosine as adenosine triphosphate. Yep. Are we somehow taking some of that adenosine that's in the brain and utilizing it for movement or exercise? So there actually is a paper that came out um, two years ago in a mouse model um, looking exactly at that. It was published <gasps> in like one of the like the most prestigious journals in the world. It's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And that is exactly sounds super nerdy. But they, well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's exactly what they found. So adenosine really? in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, no, you are spot on. So that's crazy. Adenosine is produced um, in these, uh, in glia, uh, called astrocytes. And then it's shuttled from the glia um, in order to, you know, be involved for, for cellular energy specifically in the brain. Um, well, these researchers found uh, transporters that are able to facilitate um, transport from the brain into extra brain, so bodily areas that could be used as cellular energy substrate stores. Um, and I'm actually gonna take this a step further. So yes. one, of the, one of the primary projects I, I tried to get off the ground, but um, as you know, with federal spending like what's hot and what's not changes frequently. Uh, so unfortunately I haven't been able to do this study yet, but I have this theory about creatine, especially creatine supplementation, being able to do something very similar to exercise where it rapidly replenishes the, um, the ATP adenosine stores so that you require less sleep at night but still be able to perform just as well the next day. And we've actually, there's a group in Canada who did a study uh, relating it to cognitive performance where they found that uh, doses of creatine supplementation, so doing a, a, a load up phase for two weeks and then doing the maintenance phase, um, when these individuals were sleep deprived, they tended to have more stable mental performance because, um, they had that extra adenosine and ATP to utilize from creatine stores instead of the traditional, you know, glycogen um, stores. Oh, this is fun. This yeah. is fun. All right. So I'm telling you, I could talk about I like, mean, when I get too deep into the weeds. I could talk about adenosine all day. You you are hitting my interest from so many levels just <laughs> as in regard to health science, which is what um, one of my degrees is in. So yeah, uh, the health science is very valuable and sleep has been not not part of my uh, formal education, but it is definitely something that that I've yeah. studied um, outside of my my formal studies, simply because in recovery and recover from 
injury, recover from stress, recover from athletic performance, recover yeah. from cognitive issues. Uh, sleep is highly important. So I want to I want to talk about a few more things. Sure. And then we're going to open it up to the uh, people that are listening, see if we have any questions. So yeah. I have three things kind of that I want to talk about. One is light. Uh, yeah. I want to talk about light. I want to talk about red light. I want to talk about blue light, um, mm -hmm. infrared light. What are, what are some of the effects of light and, and what it has on sleep? So light is the primary driver and manipulator of sleep. Um, that's something that we have utilized in the research field and even in military science for years in order to keep people alert and awake at times when their body doesn't necessarily want to be. Uh, so blue light, as we know, is very alertness promoting. It actively... Um, causes the recruitment of uh, alertness promoting neurochemical and even endocrine pathways of the brain and body. Um, so, you know, for firefighters, for example, for those firefighters who are about to do the 24 hour shift um, mm -hmm. and say they're going into work in the winter during short days, uh, we recommend they have a blue light box as they're driving in in the morning, something to uh, sort of coax their brain into staying alert um, during a time when their brain wants to be asleep. Uh, and it's the same throughout their 24-hour shift. Uh, there's been a, a shift in the culture in recent years where we're actually now outfitting um, fire stations and even locker rooms of athletes. And even uh, there's talk of maybe doing this in like the C-130s on military planes where we're outfitting them with blue light technology that, again, is saturating uh, the ice with this light um, and specifically activating alertness promoting pathways of the brain and body. Now, red light is actually, we as humans are insensitive to red light. Uh, actually, all mammals are insensitive to red light. Um, so that's actually something when we do our sleep deprivation studies uh, and whether it's in humans or animals, like we could be in a dark room and I could have like a small dim red light shining and your body uh, and your brain won't actually react to it. Um, so when it comes to red light, uh, I think I wouldn't say it has any benefit, but like, say you are somebody who, for whatever reason, you can't sleep at a dark, in a dark room at night or say like, you just can't go to the bathroom in the middle of the night without flipping the switch. I would recommend like having, uh, like a red nightlight or maybe like a red light in your bathroom, um, so that is your light source. So you're not, again, uh, disrupting your sleep cycle by blasting your eyes with, with blue light. Yeah. Now, with infrared light, you know, I've gotten, I've done a little bit more reading. I haven't done any research related to, like, IR, saunas, and, and recovery. Um, you know, the science of it is very interesting because there are studies to show that it activates um, down to the mitochondrial and cellular substrate level. Um, but myself personally, I haven't, haven't done enough research with that. So I think with, with infrared light, it probably falls into that same category as, as creatine supplementation, where it's used more for um, replenishing cellular energy stores rather than like holistically um, facilitating recovery. Um, okay. Well, when you talked about the the blue light and the red light, one of the things that we'd gotten we had gone on vacation a few years ago to Mexico, and we'd gotten this this light that we're going to use in the kids' room as a nightlight. We plugged yeah. it in, and the light was blue. And yeah, I told yeah. my wife, yes. I am not okay with a blue nightlight because yes, blue light is, is promoting year. this, right? So can we can we yeah. shift it to something else? But what a lot of people may not know is that also blue light is a primary spectrum of light that comes from computer screens and comes from your yes. cell phone. So yes, for yes. people who are trying to go to bed at night by staring mm -hmm. into their computer screens, television screens, or their phones – there may need to be a shift. Now, what I have is uh, a blue light blocking screen, and it doesn't block yeah, all yeah. the blue light. But for me, that's going to be something, a, a step, an active step that I take in order to limit the amount of blue light because I will look at my phone at night before bed. Um, I try to keep my, my wife, my wife will be on the on the phone or on the computer, and she'll just be like, I can't fall asleep. And I'm like, ah, yeah. that's the blue light. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's, uh, I, I mean, so there's two things. There's a blue light and then 
one of the worst habits you can ever get into is watching TV from your bed. Like nobody should have a TV in your bedroom. Um, as we say, your bedroom, I mean, there's a psychology to sleep too. Your bedroom is for sleeping and sex and that's it. Um, even in New York. So, uh, you know, we were, we were staying in a hotel for two months and I had to, I had this teeny tiny hotel room in Hell's Kitchen. We were at the Fairfield Marriott on um, 36th Street. And close to us. It, beautiful, you know, view, uh, 26 floors, but it was like such a tiny room. And I had to like treat, I was lucky I had two beds. So I used the one bed as like my eating space and like working space. And then I used the other bed for sleeping. And then I had this little like workout corner, but I only ever was in my sleeping bed when I slept. Yeah. That sounds like my apartment. Uh, and I have a, I have a family of five. So, oh, wow. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> um, so I had, so I have two more questions. One yeah. is I want to bring up my favorite word in okay. sweet science. And then okay. I want you to talk about it. The super chiasmatic nucleus. Ah, the SCN. Yeah, so funny. It's so funny you didn't know my research background. Um, So that's like, you know, there's many aspects of sleep, but I pretty much uh, did my dissertation work on looking at uh, neurochemical actions of the SCN. No way. And um, actually how drugs of abuse, like the reason why they're so bad for the sleep system is because they have active finding sites in the SCN, uh, specifically for alcohol, cocaine, and um, fentanyl. So those are those were three classes of drugs that I looked at for my dissertation, where I would okay. directly infuse uh, cocaine, alcohol, or fentanyl into uh, the specifically into the SEN of uh, rodents. I was uh, going to say that didn't sound like it would pass an IRB. No, it would not. No, 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 no. But there's a lot of. So what's beautiful about the SCN is there is, um, it's one of those brain areas that is conserved, highly conserved across evolution because it lies in the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is the, the, you know, the endocrine controlling area of the brain that is at in, deep in the brain. Um, and that's sort of how the brain was conserved across animal species is, you know, it developed from the inside out instead of the outside in. Um, so, you know, regardless if like a mouse doesn't have a highly complex developed frontal cortex like we do, uh, the actions of the SCN in the hypothalamus act in a similar manner as to that in humans. And what's so cool about the SCN is its actions are independent of whether the animal is nocturnal or diurnal. Oh. Uh, that is controlled by a, a different brain area that has been uh, identified over the years. Wow. Um, but the SEN is the reason why it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, uh, for people who don't know is, um, is because it sits at the base of the optic chiasm. And so the optic chiasm is the point at which the optic nerves converge, hence chiasm for Latin. Um, and the SEN sits right above that. So that in and of itself makes you recognize just how potent of a stimulator light is uh, for the Uh, SCN and downstream actions, uh, because that's really what it is, is the the SCN is more or less like the motherboard. And then all the actions um, in in terms of how it connects to other brain areas and how it signals um, areas outside of the brain um, is it's all controlled from the SCN. I love it. I love see. This is not just my favorite word, but it's some of my favorite information. So yeah, well, uh, and it's we know. I mean, we've also known that it's super important from again animal studies where we've actually lesioned and have like completely removed the SCN. Um, and then also um, in, in a few human studies, there are people who have genetic mutations that specifically impact the. Um, they're called voltage gated receptors within the SEN, basically that means is they have to reach a a certain electrochemical threshold in order to be activated. Um, But there's some people who have a mutation of that and so their SEN doesn't function properly. And what is the byproduct of that? Uh, So it's uh, usually something like along the lines of um, uh, uh, not delayed sleep phase syndrome, but something like that, like non 24 hour (laughs) disorder. Yeah. 
Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It is kind of the clock for that circadian rhythm, right? Like it's it's yeah. what keeps the pace. It's the pacemaker in a, in a sense, yeah? It is yeah? the pace, yes. It is the uh, central pacemaker. That's exactly what we call it. Awesome. Uh, and then my last question before we open it up to other people. Sorry, other people that are listening where I'm just, I'm rattling off questions because I love this topic so much. Can you speak to GABA and what yep. GABA is and its effect on the body, the brain and sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So GABA is the primary neuroinhibitory chemical of the body and the brain. Uh, so it is an inhibitory signal. Um, and, um, but it can also be an activating signal too. So if you have, um, if you remember from like basic physics, if you have a negative and a negative charge, those two negatives combined can create a positive reaction. Uh, so you could see from that in and of itself, how GABA is the most potent modulator of physiology. Um, so GABA is released, uh, when we're transitioning from wake to sleep. So typically in the, the deepest uh, restorative stages of sleep, we have really high GABA tone. Um, because again, like our, our, the GABA signals have to make sure that we're not active um, in terms of you know, muscle tone. Um, they also have to make sure that, that you know, we're sort of somewhat removed from consciousness. You know, we're sort of in the subconscious state, not unconscious state, but subconscious state. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know from the world of sleep medicine, GABA is the primary target of the most common existing hypnotics on the market. So Ambien, Lunesta, uh, Sonata, they all target specifically the GABA system. Alcohol is also actually a, a GABA agonist as well. Um, so as you can see, it has huge effect, but yeah. Uh, there's, there's also, just, let's go back to that about the, the alcohol, because I think that, um, you know, some people will say this, like I'm having a hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to have some drinks to help me go to sleep. But one of the yeah. things that Matthew Walker talks about in his book, and then Dr. Rebecca Robbins and I have had conversations about is that there's a difference between sleep and unconsciousness. Yeah. Um, and that, that alcohol can facilitate some unconsciousness, but you may not actually have these levels of sleep that you've talked about thus far. Exactly. So there's nothing wrong, I think, with having one and at most two drinks before you go to bed because uh -huh. there is something about like that level of, of GABA activation is enough to coax your brain into a state of sleep okay. um, quit more quickly. But past two drinks, it's, it's too much GABA. And it goes back to my point before about um, when you have GABA mixed with GABA, it's called uh, disinhibition. So when you have... Yeah. Uh, an inhibitor that inhibits an inhibitor, it causes a positive reaction. And so that's essentially what happens with alcohol is you have too much inhibition, which tips the scale into the positive direction. And so you're left uh, with insomnia instead of, um, you know, being facilitated into sleep. Okay. And then final question. I know I said the last one was the final question, but you had mentioned it earlier, um, not in our conversation, but uh, via email, you talked about sleep banking. Can you yeah. speak to sleep banking for a moment? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is a, a phenomenon that we sort of coined within the military about 10 years ago. Um, so we have found that if you load people up on sleep, so you extend their sleep, um, in preparation for sleep deprivation, they are more likely to have a stable and okay performance across, uh, I'm talking severe sleep deprivation. So, okay. uh, you know, where you're awake 40 to 60 hours, um, just extending your sleep by an hour to an hour and a half for a week, um, can help somebody get through 40 hours, uh, of full-on sleep deprivation more easily. Uh, and it's actually, we found um, healthy for your immune system too. Um, so, you know, that was one of the things in New York City I really emphasized to the soldiers under me is like, hey, like sleep with every opportunity you need. Uh, you know, when we were working those 92 hour work weeks, like I let my soldiers nap um, inside, you know, take turns to, to nap because uh, I didn't want any of them getting sick. And, you know, fortunately we didn't have anyone get sick, so. 
So does that does that speak to the the common phrase of sleep debt that you can overcome a sleep debt by sleeping more? Yes. So um, as we like to say, sleep is like a bank account. The more you put in, the more you can take out. Um, but then also the more you take out, the more you have to put back in. Okay. Uh, so it's yeah, it's the same concept. Gotcha. All right, cool. I'm loving it. Uh, let's let's shift it over to Greg. I know you don't have much time, so I'm going to try to be really respectful. Oh, no of worries. That. Um, and I'm so hey, sorry to everybody listening that's asking questions. If you've asked questions, because I have really uh, bogarted this entire conversation. But Greg, do we have any questions about sleep in the uh, in the queue here? Uh, yeah, uh, John wants to know. Uh, my wife's body heats up when she sleeps to the point that you can't even touch her. Uh, what would you say about that in terms of what's going on? So co-sleeping is one of the, I think a lot of it has to come, uh, it goes back to co-sleeping. Uh, that's one of the things uh, that we're sort of getting away from in society and going back to, you know, like the 1950s where people used to sleep separately. Uh, and it goes back to, to Rich's point, you know, his core body temperature responds very differently at night um, compared to my core body temperature. Um, so the best piece of advice I, I unfortunately have, it's not like the, you know, the preferred solution, but to have her sleep in a separate room um, where she has the ability to adjust the ambient temperature more. So she can, you know, drop the temperature to 65 to pop, probably 62 degrees, uh, perhaps invest in one of those, uh, chili pads. Um, yeah. that's where I would start. And then Pamela wants to know, uh, you know, I'll abbreviate this as long, but what is your view on proper nutrition eating, uh, and its impact on getting the proper amount of sleep? That's an excellent question. Uh, so one of the things you want to avoid uh, that we as humans are, are very guilty of is uh, having sweets before you go to bed. I uh. think um, that is something disruptive to sleep more so than even alcohol. Uh, and the reason is because uh, it spikes our, our blood glucose levels. And uh, when we're sleeping, we're going to sleep and transitioning into sleep at night, we actually want to have, see a decrease in our blood glucose levels, not an increase. Um, and then in, in general, um, you know, you, you want to avoid like spikes in your blood glucose levels throughout the day anyway. So, uh, you know, staying away from those uh, simple carbohydrates uh, Etc. Uh, can we piggyback on that and then talk about just yeah. eating before sleep? Is there there a, a kind of a best practice when it comes to eating, regardless of the sweets or? So it's different for, as you know, athletes versus the general population. Um, intermittent fasting. There's a lot of evidence to support it um, in terms of promoting uh, lean muscle mass and. Um, I, and I think that is a good approach for the general population. Now, when it comes to elite athletes and people who are training for a competition, you actually do want to have carbs, um, you know, complex carbohydrates. Again, nothing with a high glycemic index that's going to spike your blood glucose. You want to have that before bed because, you know, and I certainly know is like that insomnia you get in the middle of the night because your body's starving because it's just been, your basal metabolic rate has just been so high from training. Um, so with athletes, I, I think it's good to have um, something low on the glycemic index before you go to sleep. Now, I knew a lot of people, especially hypertrophy-based athletes, that would crush protein prior yeah. to sleep. But does that make sense? Is that something that's a good practice? Yeah, so actually protein is a good practice, um, especially uh, casein uh, protein, because um, it does have this, this slow release, again, yeah. and it's not going to spike your blood glucose. Um, and a lot of that actually is enriched with tryptophan as well. And tryptophan is one of the precursors that can help facilitate sleep as well. Um, a lot of uh, over-the-counter um, herbal sleep supplements are actually... Um, uh, saturated with, with tryptophan. Okay. All right. And, and I know people have heard tryptophan because of Thanksgiving and things like that. Yeah. But tryptophan is actually in a lot of food. Yeah. It is in, or meat. it is, it is in a lot of meat. Um, I can't remember 
which ones, but yes, you're absolutely right. It's just not limited to your, your Thanksgiving meal. Yeah. Creatine is in a lot of meat too, but the problem is, is, um, the bioactive properties of creatine in terms of the volume you need, um, you're not going to get enough from it from red meat. You actually need to supplement, because uh, I think red meat, a pound of red meat has like three milligrams of, of creatine, where or three grams of creatine, whereas a supplement, in order to have like a biologically advantageous effect, it has to be anywhere from five to 10 grams. Excellent. Uh, Greg, do we have any other questions out there? Yeah, Melissa wants to know, I uh, she says, I find I sleep so much better when I wake up naturally rather than with an alarm. Is that a common yep. uh, thing? Absolutely. Um, and usually that is um, because you're transitioning out of uh, REM sleep. So when it comes to sleep, there's, you know, the 90-minute sleep cycle um, where you go from a state of wake to non-REM sleep to REM sleep. Um, and we know from years of research that it's much easier um, to stay alert when you're coming out of REM sleep and then transition back to a state of wakefulness than to be woken up out of a stage of non-REM sleep. It, should, it has to do with, um, without getting deep into the weeds, the, the turning on and off of different neurochemical pathways. All right. What else you got, sir? And uh, the final one we have here in the chat is uh, Scott says, I find that I have more sleep disturbances or lower sleep efficiency overall in the spring? Is that potentially due to mm -hmm. allergy season or other considerations? It can be due to allergies. Um, yeah, so the histamine system is a uh, alertness promoting system. Um, and so uh, allergies activate the, the histamine system. It actually could also be due to the light. Uh, so that's one of the things I, I tend to have uh, longer sleep and better sleep in the winter uh, when there's, there's shorter days than in the summer when there's um, longer days. Uh, one of the things I have to be very disciplined about in the summer, especially now as we're approaching the longest day of the year, is to go, bed, go to bed at a reasonable time because I know that light is just going to hit me at 6.30 and I'm going to be awake. Um, so light, and, and you can invest in blackout curtains. Um, personally, I'm not a fan of them unless you are a shift worker um, or a first responder. Um, you know, in that case, you want blackout curtains because they're going to most likely be sleeping during the day. But for the rest of us, uh, it is extremely healthy for our sleep cycle and our circadian rhythm to go to bed after sunrise and wake up, you know, around sunset to get that natural light source. Yeah, well, that must be why it is so difficult for me to wake up in the winter because oh, everyone, oh, yeah, it is miserable. I just want to sleep longer and longer and longer. Uh, and with that being said, um, what we, there are night owls and there are early birds, and yeah. I've transitioned. I used to be such a night owl, and I don't mm -hmm. know if this is something that happens with age or. Or what? But no, I've, I've certainly transitioned. Okay. All right. Talk me through yeah. this. Yeah. It actually. So the the woman I work for um, at Brown University. That's more or less her claim to fame, and she's the reason why school start times are delayed for high schoolers to middle schoolers, uh, because as we go through puberty and, and, and into young adulthood, so we're talking like throughout your twenties, uh, your circadian rhythm uh, rewires itself to be a night owl. Um, so you'll actually see a huge shift in the uh, nighttime release of melatonin to favor more nighttime hours. Uh, but then as we reach our 30s and beyond, we have this complete shift and then we want to become early people. Uh, so it's no it's no surprise that like, you know, when you're 60, 70, 80, you're waking up extremely early. That is a, just a, a biological um, consequence of being human, uh, for whatever reason, okay. that's how we as humans have evolved. I got it. Cause, uh, I remember I, I worked at a gym and they opened at six o'clock and then I remember the, the general manager goes, look, we're going to need some people to cover an earlier shift. All, all the old people want us to open at five. So yeah. that was, that was something that, that, 
pricey now because I would sleep so late, but now it's a it's a steady get up at, at six o'clock whether or not I have clients or anything like that. And I used to say I'd only get up early in the morning if somebody paid me to do so and I would get up yeah. early to go train. But now it's just that's where where I perk right up. Um, yeah. So here's my last thing that I want to ask you. And it really has to do with kind of actionable steps and best practices. And I know Matthew yes. Walker says if he could, if you get anything out of his book, it's a sleep schedule. Now yes. with all the information that he's put out, he says if you don't take anything else away from this book, go to sleep at the same time and wake up around yes. the same time. Like try to get a sleep schedule. Now with that being said, can you speak to that and then any other top practice, uh, best practices that you think yes. we should adhere to? So that is the, he is absolutely right. I mean, it makes sense. Um, you know, he is a, a leading expert in the field. His sleep schedule is number one priority because uh, you are um, keeping to your circadian rhythm of when to be awake, when to be asleep. Um, honestly, you should start your sleep routine about 90 minutes before bed. So 90 to 60 minutes before bed, that's when you power down all the technology. So no more smartphones, no more TV. Um, a few people invest in like yoga sort of like, that's when I do as an athlete, my, um, deep tissue, like myofascial release work, things like yeah. that. Um, you actually want to keep the, the light in, in your home, your home low. Uh, so either it's investing in a dim light system, um, or candles, just something to just low level light, uh, a lot of people will have tea or take a hot shower. And that's true even in the winter too, because that vasodilation does really uh, promote sleep. And then again, just, you know, keep the temperature low in your room, um, go to sleep in, in a dark room. Uh, sound machines are actually great too. Um, even if you have like meditative, like, you know, classical music, stuff like that too. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things is the more you age, the more difficult sleep becomes, uh, one, because of family life and two, just, it's just a byproduct of aging, you know, like everything breaks down the, the older we get. So, um, you really have to start taking your sleep seriously. Oh, Dr. Allison Brager, I want you back on this show. I, oh, can, I will I come back and we can do it. We can do it live from New York. How about that? Oh, that's just hopefully, that's just hopefully I'm not coming back to help with COVID-19. The COVID. Again. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. From your I lips to God's ears. I hope that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, this has been amazing. You are an absolute wealth of knowledge. You're fun to talk to. I love that you have uh, so much experience and so much background from from uh, a clinical perspective, from a research perspective, from an athlete's perspective. Uh, I love the, and I'm going to shout you out for wearing an NASM shirt, oh, uh, yeah. which I've never done on on these calls. <laughs> you are far more on brand than me, so shout out to that. Thank you for being on this, and uh, I cannot wait to get you back on the show, and we'll we'll discuss what it looks like and what we'll talk about. But we're gonna we're gonna get you back in. All right, no, sounds great. Thank you guys. I'm sorry I have to awesome. get off uh, so quickly, but. I understand. Thank you so much. And for everybody out there, thank you so much for being a part of it, listening, and for your questions. Uh, thanks. My name is Rick Ritchie, and this is the NASM CPT Podcast. <laughs>